0: Welcome to The Supporting Cast. This is Eli Goldsmith. Today's guest is chef and restaurateur Roy Choi. In addition to sharing his thoughts around the coronavirus and its impact on the restaurant industry, Roy shares his story as a Korean-American immigrant growing up between Los Angeles and Orange County, his early work as a chef, eventually becoming head chef at the Beverly Hilton, before being unceremoniously fired by a restaurant in 2008 at the peak of the financial crisis. It was during this crisis, both personal and professional, that Roy developed the Kogi menu and Kogi truck, and with the help of social media, created a phenomenon. Roy also speaks about food trucks as fundamental to the culture and development of Los Angeles, partnering with director John Favreau on the movie Chef, And how the current crisis created by the coronavirus may actually give way to something beautiful as the last one did with kogi an inspiring conversation and perhaps a brief ray of hope and optimism amid an anxious time this is the supporting cast
1: Roy Choi, welcome to The Supporting Cast. Thank you very much for having me. Um, Hello, Wolverines. (laughs) How how y'all doing out
0: there at home? At home, I know, quarantined. So that's what I want to ask uh, you about first, actually, Roy. This is quite a time for the restaurant industry, for the food and beverage industry. What I first want to ask about is, given uh, coronavirus, of course, how are you being personally affected? I want to get to the broader sort of industry, but... You have various restaurants. You have various ventures. How have the last few days been for you and your businesses in particular?
1: Well, it's been very emotional for um, a lot of my colleagues um, and my teams and and my staff members and everyone involved because restaurants as an as, as existence live pretty much day by day. Mm-hmm. So a lot of people look at restaurants and they, they see the beauty of it, which is nothing wrong with that. You yeah, know, they see filled with people, everyone having a good time. Mm-hmm. It's where you want to be, right? And it, um, the allure of it makes it feel like uh, you're this huge Fortune 500 company, right? It feels like it, it's just bubbling with prosperity. Yeah. But a restaurant, it's almost like putting on a uh, show, mm-hmm. right? Like, um, like a stage show. Behind the curtain it's chaos. Yeah. Behind the curtain, it's just getting to the moment. Like, if you've ever been involved in theater or anything, it's like literally, right the second before the curtain goes up, it's like, you know, uh, you'd never imagine that that show was going to go on. But, you know, obviously the show goes on. So, yeah. the restaurant industry, pretty much we live pretty much month to month. Mm-hmm. You know, no matter how big the restaurant, I mean, there are a few outliers, but 90% of the restaurants. And so, this has been a big blow and a lot of, Beyond the money part, a lot of us, our work and our and our personal life are are blurred. Hmm. So maybe pretty much, maybe very much like teachers, yeah. you know, um, or administrators, where we do it because we don't know how to do anything else, mm-hmm. you know. And so when that's taken away from you, it's very difficult. For me personally, I have a restaurant in Las Vegas called Best Friend. Mm-hmm. And um, just last night, the governor put a uh, full shut down on the whole the whole state. So, um not just you can do takeout or this or that, but like everything is closed. Casinos, hotels, yeah. restaurants and for 30 days. So at first it was going to be 2 weeks, so everyone was getting by. We were uh, we were paying all our team mm-hmm. and all our managers and then plus they had vacation time. So everyone had about uh 2 weeks to 30 days to get through this. But yeah. now with the mandate of 30 days, you never know; it could be two months, three months. So, um, people are really scared. I think that when it hit Vegas, that uh, that really—I never imagined Vegas completely shutting down. Yeah, you know. Um, here you? in Los Angeles, I have uh, food trucks and yep. and restaurants that do pick up. Uh, it's definitely impacted business, but we're only on like day three of of the announcement. So. We'll see what happens. Got it. And what are your restaurants in L.A.? Remind us. I have Kogi, Uh the Kogi truck, which comes here to Harbor Westlake a lot. Of course. Middle school and upper school. And I want to get to that story later. Okay. Even before I was a parent, we've been coming here. Yeah. Um, So the trucks are out there, and we're actually trying to be a service to many um, because we go to almost every corner of L.A. County and parts of Orange County. Mm -hmm. Um, We go all the way from... Pretty much from Chatsworth mm-hmm. all the way down to Diamond Bar, um, all the way across to like Cerrito, Cypress, Long Beach, Carson, and all the way in between through the valley and the city. Mm-hmm. So uh, we look at it as that uh, we're one of the few that are being a- are able to be mobile and go out and uh, feed folks while they're in the house, you right. know. Um, so I have Kogi, I have the Alibi Room, which is a bar, which none of you students could get into <laughs> right now. <laughs> um, but uh, that, unfortunately, um, there's a more, they told everyone not to eat at restaurants and drink at bars, so right. uh, we just decided to close that for now. Um, we're trying to shift all our team members, give, uh, everyone's chipping in and some are taking less hours so that we can take others from other other venues and pull them in and stuff like that. So. Uh-huh. Um, it's it's had a huge impact on the truck though on the catering side because a big part of our of our business was uh, taking care of movie sets and mm. television television sets like um, they would throw parties for their their team or right. rap parties and, right events and, and events right. and right. I think Hollywood is completely almost shutting down as well wow. so it's having an echo effect on everything um, so we're just out there trying to feed um, going back to kind of basics yeah. You know. And restaurant workers, you know, we tend to stereotype in L.A.
0: the waiter or the waitress as sort of the actress, the out-of-work actress or actor. Oh, yeah. But there are people who this is their careers. I was at um, waiting for takeout at a pizza place mm-hmm. a couple nights ago, and I was standing with a gentleman, and it was nice to be able to, t- you know, we, mm-hmm. we could tell it was nice to be able to talk to somebody. And he was mm-hmm. the manager of Joffrey's in yeah. Malibu. Yeah. And he'd been there for nine years. I mean, this is his career. These are careers, not just jobs, but careers.
1: Yes, um, and especially outside of L.A. Yeah. Outside of L.A. and New York, even in big cities like Seattle, Chicago, Mm -hmm. Miami, this is—food and beverage is your profession. Yeah. It is a skill. It is a craft. Mm -hmm. And um, you you have lifelong professionals that their whole life is built around what's called hospitality, which is— the art of taking care of you, yeah, you know, um, and it is an art and sometimes we, we lose sight of that, especially here in Los Angeles, because, um, sometimes working in a restaurant is, is a stepping stone or a means to an end. Mm -hmm. Um, Right. Like the actor, the actor, but, uh, the actors are having a tough time now too, because both of their professions are, are being locked down. But, um, but yeah, it is, uh, it it is a it is a craft. It's a craft for me. It's something I went to school for. It's yeah. something that I grew up around. Um, not only as 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 a career, but it's something that was a necessity as an immigrant kid coming here. Yeah. And um, sometimes when you look at immigrant families, the first and only thing that you could possibly do is maybe open something related to food. Right. A small market, small liquor store, mm-hmm. small uh, convenience store. Small restaurant, uh, noodle shop, mm-hmm. uh, sandwich shop, hamburger shop. You know, these are things that are available. Don't require maybe you you know whatever country you came from. Don't require that much English. Yeah, um, uh, and it's something and, you know, and something you know, and right. it's the only thing that you can really transfer over. Yeah, culturally from um, wherever you're coming from, whether that's Eastern Europe, Asia, South America, you know, Africa whatever it is, it seems as though a lot of the early entries are um, things like donut shops, liquor stores, uh, hamburger shops, and then um, driving, taxi driving, things like that. Got it. Mm
0: -hmm. And what's been, before we get to your own story, Mm -hmm. what's been your message to your employees to, is there anything you can say to sort of the
1: broader industry that you're Apart. Well, I, I, I think this this is a unique one because it's something we're all collectively going through. So yeah. there's not much. Uh, I've just been trying to be someone that makes everyone smile, tell yeah. them that we're going to get through this, um, that I don't have all the answers. Yeah. Try to talk to them about um, creation after destruction mm. and um, that all of these things are material that we built. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if they all go away... They can be built again. We can build them again. Yeah, and then maybe we can build them in different ways. Maybe there can be avenues where we create equity and 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 love and communication between each other. Yeah, um, in different ways. You yeah, know? and uh, who says that this way is the is the only way? So now I want to get to your mm-hmm. story. So where did you grow up? Where were you born? I was born in Seoul, Korea, South okay. Korea. I came over when I was about two years old. Hmm. Uh, My parents they they came as immigrants, but this they're very unique. My dad, actually, both of them are very unique because they came over in their early twenties. They were both kind of um, came from somewhat of an educated class, so Mm -hmm. they came over for graduate studies. Ah. in the um, I believe in the mid '60s or early '60s, so they came over in their mid twenties. they met in LA, fell in love. Mm. Oh, um, so they moved here. Separately. But they went back to Korea. Oh, I see. So, um, cuz they were here as students, but I see. they could have they could have probably figured out how to stay and you know, but I think they were still tethered by uh their home country and mm-hmm. they decided after they got married to go back and give it a shot. But the trouble with uh going back is once you taste America, it's hard to go back wherever you're from. Yeah. So I think I'm just, I'm imagining this right now, but I think when they went back, they looked around they're like, what the heck did we just do? (laughs) (laughs) We got to get back to the U.S. We got to get back. So I think they spent the next two to three years just devising a plan of how to get back. Got it. And um, so I was born and Mm -hmm. then we came back when I was around two. We landed here in Los Angeles in Koreatown. Mm. And... uh, Did um, they open a restaurant? We started with a liquor store. A liquor store. Yeah, we started with a liquor store and then... um, a bunch of then what happened in that time um there was really no quote unquote koreatown so uh just the immigrants that were here we all banded together and we would meet each other on the weekends and we had this this collective thing where we would help each other out mm-hmm. kind of like a time like this where we would anyone who had a pet let's say you wanted to start a microphone store you know uh everyone would get behind you hmm. and then help and chip in and then you'd open your microphone store, and then we and then we would all be your first customers. Wow! Right, and then that person who would maybe uh, take off and have a little bit, you know, of momentum mm-hmm. would then do the same thing for the next person mm. who maybe wanted to start a trophy shop or, uh, a, you know, a liquor store or um. And is that how Koreatown one- town sort of uh-huh. became a uh-huh. thing? And or wow. a one-hour photo shop yeah. or whatever. Um, it was really looking at these. Obscure areas, but that things that people had to use every day mm-hmm. or that people were using a lot. But the first wave came from again helping everyone to get that store open mm-hmm. and then supporting that store. Yeah. And then the next person getting the momentum, doing the same thing. Yeah. Um, were you aware of that as a little kid? That there were people
0: beyond your own parents in the in I your, your local community that. that were supporting your parents and that your parents were supporting them? Were
1: you aware Yeah, I was very aware of that because yeah. um I think from a very young age I was very aware of the duality in my life one of being an American yeah and um, going to school and and learning arithmetic and eating grilled cheese sandwiches yeah. and peanut butter and jelly sandwiches <laughs> and all that and 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 learning and seeing that and then seeing my whole other world which was a, like a village mm-hmm. you know yeah. and um and then really always understanding and learning that duality um I was, I was thrown into the deep end of the pool because in that context of life, I was also a latchkey kid, um, uh, which I'm not sure many of the younger generation now really understands, but, um, two working parents, two working parents, but like left alone. Yeah. Like straight up alone. <laughs> yeah. Like now we, as Harvard Westlake parents, we drop you off at school. We pick you up. <laughs> yeah. We take you to the bus stop. <laughs> we, you know, we're, we're, we're there for you. Yeah. <laughs> we right. really are. Um, and uh, we're in teacher conferences. We're doing everything. Yeah. Um, we know where you are every single second of the day. Yeah, in, in most cases, right? Especially with smartphones and things now. Especially right? with yeah. smartphones, and especially in this society. Back then, they had no idea where I was. Yeah, I had no idea where they were. We yeah. just knew that we were going to meet up at a certain point. Yeah, I live. I grew up in Koreatown, um, West LA, mm-hmm. a little bit of West. We moved a lot because again, you're very fluid based upon where the business goes. Yeah. So West Hollywood. I grew up. Bouncing around L.A. all the way up until junior high school. Hmm. And then we moved to Orange County. Ah. My parents, um, their uh, fortunes shifted overnight, Hmm. like literally overnight. Hmm. How so? We were were trying all kinds of things from restaurants to liquor stores, selling Amway, selling encyclopedias, selling kimchi out of the truck, Mm -hmm. everything. And then finally they got into jewelry. In oh. um, right around the Reagan era, mm-hmm. and um, things just shifted, uh, and they started selling wholesale jewelry, and um, they v- created a very specific lane for themselves, which was um, gemstones and, ah. and really, really high quality gemstones, same quality as you would find at maybe, let's say, a Tiffany. Yeah, but marked all the way down. Oh yeah, kind of so, like the diamond district. Yeah, downtown like that. Yeah. And yeah. so it was about quality. And quantity, but just above wholesale price. So people yeah. were eating that up. So yeah, kinda of like how I sell tacos, you know, like <laughs> yeah. it, it's quality, quantity for the people, but you gotta you gotta do a lot to make a little, but yeah. but you're always active. Yeah you know. And um yeah, over literally overnight, living in apartments, bouncing around. It felt like overnight for me, but now as an adult, I probably realized it was probably over a year or two year process that my mm-hmm. dad made this transition. But it to me it felt like I went to sleep mm-hmm. and I woke up and he had a Cadillac <laughs> and we were moving to Orange County. Um this to, was in junior high when you were junior yeah, high yeah. to this million dollar home and I moved to the suburbs and I woke up and I was in I was in the suburbs. Huh. You know? And um, again it felt like it felt like overnight to me. And were there as many Korean Americans around you? No, at that I point? grew I, I they moved us to an area called uh, Villa Park, which is in the city of Orange. Mm-hmm. And um, it was pretty much 90% Caucasian. Uh, ah, yeah. okay. Yeah. But uh, it was weird. It was like, a, it was very similar to like the Outsiders, mm-hmm. the book. Like you had the Soches, you know, in Villa Park, and then you had the Greasers just over this one street in Orange. And um, I kind of straddle both worlds, you know. Got um, it. And what was your schooling like there? Did you go to junior high and high school in that yeah. area? I went to junior high and high school in Orange County. I, I look back and I'm really, I'm really, I think a lot of that built who I am. Yeah. You know, there's a part of me that had always wished I grew up in one neighborhood. Mm-hmm. You know, um, that that's always like a romantic thing that I see out there for me. Like uh, whether, you know, you come from a gang or you come from a Jewish neighborhood or you come from an Italian neighborhood mm-hmm. or you come from whatever neighborhood it is you come from mm-hmm. but i always i've always dreamed of like uh, of coming from that one neighborhood where i everyone knew you everyone knew me mm-hmm. we we all grew up together you know i see that a lot on the east coast with a lot of families yeah. and stuff and like and you could always represent that you could say i come from this part of boston you yeah. know Um, I never had that because I moved literally every two, three years. Um, so but wasn't that also a benefit? And that a lot of people in the restaurant industry they specialize. That
0: I grew up in an Italian uh, neighborhood. I make Italian food. Part of what makes you unique is your kind of blending of cultures in the food that you create. And that's
1: I look back, and that's because I moved so much. Yeah, And 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 although going through it, you know, it was difficult. Yeah, I look back, and that's exactly the DNA of. Who I became and why my food tastes the way it does because yeah. I understand what it is to grow up in Koreatown, South Central, West L.A., West Hollywood, uh, Villa Park, City of Orange, mm-hmm. Anaheim. Yeah. You know, um, I understand what it is to be in the suburbs, but also in a small apartment in the city. You mm-hmm. know, I understand what it means to have no money, to have a lot of money. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I understand what it means to. To be ridiculed, but to also be a leader, you know? And yeah. so it's it's things that um, really make up the DNA of Kogi. And I think that's why... And of the city, right? Really. And of the city. And yeah. I think that's why so many people relate to Kogi. Yeah. You know, because when they eat it, they can feel a part of themselves within it. Mm-hmm. And um, these are all these little idiosyncrasies and um, psychologies and, and personality tr- things that we go through in life sometimes you can't say everything, you know, sometimes you're too shy, sometimes you don't know what to say, sometimes you're not in the right position to say things, sometimes you're afraid, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes sometimes you're putting on an act, you know, you may be on the other end of things and you might be putting on an act and being a little a jerk or aggressive or whatever, you know, and, and all these things, because we're hiding a little bit of the truth of ourselves sometimes because we don't know how to... Fully uh, let that out and express it. Yeah, kogi is that for a lot of people. When they yeah. eat it, they can, they can tune into themselves a little bit. And I think that, in a way, I I had to live my life to be able to to cook this food. To, yeah. To I didn't know it was going to be this deep when I started kogi. No. I was just making a taco. Yeah. But I I look now and I think that I went through what I went through, made this food, and and now that h- how I've seen it affect people over the last decade. Yeah. It, it's because of all these things that I just mentioned. Yeah.
0: Were there um, teachers at your junior high or high school that that impacted you uh, at that point, or were was it people later on who you think were, were um, I'm greater? I'm trying to think throughout mentors I moved, to you.
1: I moved around through a lot of schools. Elementary school, uh, so I had a few teachers along the way. I'll, mm-hmm. I'll list a couple yeah. of them quickly. Uh, fifth grade teacher being strict but sarcastic, mm. and it was. It was something that I I really related to, you know, and I think a part of that is who I am today. Mm. I'm very, very sarcastic, very um, tongue-in-cheek, but I'm also, and I'm very fluid and and liberal in in how people grow and and how I can lead them and helping them become who they are. Yeah. But at the same time, I have... I have a system and I have specific rules mm-hmm. that are fundamentals that you have to follow.
0: Well, isn't that, it's probably important
1: for a restaurant to be that way, yeah, right? Exactly. Because you
0: need a certain dish to taste a certain way and mm-hmm. be consistent and it you know it needs yeah. to be cooked for a certain amount, a certain length and so forth, sauteed a certain way. Exactly. But um, if people feel that strictness around them mm-hmm. and aren't treated with a sense of humor,
1: probably yeah. doesn't work as well. Yeah, right? then it just becomes abuse. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no one wants to work that way. <laughs> yeah, no one wants to work that way. Yeah. Um, I remember my eleventh or twelfth grade art teacher, mm. who uh, who really opened my eyes to my own creativity, mm. and allowed uh, allowed me to um, to to take a courageous step into that a little bit. Yeah, um, and also introduced me to the classics like uh, Franz Klein and Jackson Pollock and um, and Warhol mm-hmm. and. and you know all of these iconic, you know, pop artists that uh, that dominate our world today. Um, I, I, you know, I was exposed to to them through this teacher. You yeah, know? and and you know, we're we're all going to be exposed to them some way or another, whether you find them on your own or a friend or a teacher or someone. But when, since you're asking a question, it was one specific person that did expose me to it, and it was it was that teacher. Hmm. And then my first, uh, the last one is my first skills teacher at culinary school at the cia everything he taught me about how to peel an onion how to make a roux how to cut a carrot all these things um which are all fundamentals those the way he taught me is the way i teach others mm. and so his his teachings and his legacies are flowing through me now which are now flowing through hundreds of other th- oh, no. maybe thousands of other right. cooks and I, what's his name I, uh, Lou Jones Lou Jones Luke Jones yeah. from the Culinary shout Institute to, of yeah, America yeah shout out to Luke Jones
0: <laughs> <laughs> and so you graduate from high school, but you you took sort of a circuitous mm. route to to cooking yeah. right you didn't start there no no so what 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 was sort of your post high school route to the kitchen?
1: Well, I didn't start there professionally. I um grew up in a restaurant, I grew up around food, yeah, I was too close to it, I think um yeah. I worked in restaurants all throughout high school. Oh, okay. Prep cook, dishwasher, busboy, salad bar cleaner, um, everything. And uh, when I graduated high school, 18 to 25 or 26, I was back here in L.A. As soon as I graduated high school, I mean, literally, I probably had my car packed at graduation i probably got on the freeway. Wow. And, and, and came, came back to came LA back to from Orange like, County. Yeah, yeah, it was like i had to come back to LA and um i don't know what i i was lost. I was lost for those 7 years hmm. but i was working odd jobs, was gambling, i had an addiction, i was drinking a lot. Hmm. I was fighting my own destiny. I went i dropped out of law school. I I tried to put on a charade of being, becoming something intellectual, you know, Mm. uh, of working in an office, Mm -hmm. working a job, and, um, and then I was, the charade of doing that during the day, and then at night, just completely going down the rabbit's holes of, of addictions and vices, and um, just, I was, I was just completely lost, and then so bad that I ended up, Burning almost every bridge that I that I had in my life mm. when I was twenty six, and I ended up um, for about a year couch surfing um, between mm. uh, the, the few friends that I had left, and then on one of those couches is where um, I saw the show. Essence of Emerald which was <laughs> uh Emerald Legacy's first show. Yeah. And I had an out of body experience where I felt like he was talking to me. Really? Yeah, and uh um, What was it about it? I don't know. I think it was I was very vulnerable. I think that's probably yeah, you were ultim, open. You ult, were ult, ult, open vulnerable, hungover, open <laughs> yeah. completely at the end of my rope uh lying on a couch. In Palms, the neighborhood of Palms, yep, right yep. near where my taqueria is, mm-hmm. um, and just it was like around this time, around eleven a.m., mm-hmm. and again, just completely open and vulnerable, and and it was just one of those magical moments. Yeah, you know, if if that if I didn't have that moment, I wouldn't probably be sitting here with you talking on this podcast. Yeah, and so I just I had what was this out of body moment where where whole world warped and changed and i and i felt as if emerald was grabbing me and telling me you know this is you know follow me this is where you need to go this yeah. is what you need to do and um i listened and so i got up off the couch um and just made a direct line towards figuring out how i could become a chef hmm. and I did ju- you think I about knew nothing I and knew did nothing. you think about being a public chef and having a personality the way you do now, or is it just being a chef? Just being a chef. Just something to save my life. Yeah, And I had no idea about chefs. Even though I grew up around food, I grew up around Korean food, Korean restaurants and taco stands and just small little neighborhood restaurant type things. You know what I mean? I I never knew what a chef was. Fancy for me was going... Maybe to like the old spaghetti factory. Yeah. You know, <laughs> right. Or uh, Boz Big Boy or, or <laughs> Benny Hanna or Lowry's. I thought a chef was like Benny Hanna. Yeah, you right. You know what I mean? Right. Like, I had no idea what the world was. So from that moment, I I just went in headfirst and just researched, started going to the bookstores. You mm. know, We didn't have the internet back then. So I, I started going to the bookstores and just spending hours and going to the cooking section and reading the cooking books. Then I realized that there was this thing called culinary school, yeah, and then applied to culinary school and then then I found my way, okay, if I'm gonna do this, I'm kinda starting late i gotta I gotta test myself at at the very best, so it was that whole cliche of if you can make it in New York, you can make it anywhere, mm-hmm. so I moved to New York, mm. seeked out the best restaurants in New York, interned and staged in those restaurants, went to the c i a and then that's when my whole life started to click. You know, um, I was kind of a class clown in all throughout school and yeah. high school, but when I got to the CIA, uh, I went from sitting in. And the By back- the way, that's Culinary
0: Institute of America, the, not the Central Intelligence yeah, not, Agency. Not, yeah, <laughs>
1: not Langley, Virginia. But uh, I went from sitting in the back of the classroom to the front of the classroom. I uh-huh. was, I was, the one I used to ridicule maybe you know, yeah. once in a while that was had their hand up and mm-hmm. knew the answer it it was a complete uh, 180 on my whole life. Yeah. And so you move to
0: New York and you're trying to kind of make your way in all these restaurants. You eventually make your way back out to Los Angeles?
1: Yeah, so I was in New York almost 3 years and mm-hmm. I was planning on staying, but I fell in love and mm-hmm. I and I proposed to to my wife mm-hmm. and um we were about to get married and I realized that I didn't think that I could support this new life on a cook's on a cook's pay yeah. in a city that I wasn't raised in. Yeah, and I looked at the reality of what it was going to be, that uh, f- for me to do this personal, I'm going to say the word selfish. Yeah, this personal selfish climb to be the best chef I needed to be at that time. Yeah, I would probably we would probably have to live like an hour outside of the city. Uh, I'd have to take the train in every day. Yep. We'd live in a small apartment, you know, um, again, in a city that I wasn't raised in. And it was just it, it, it And making, you know, very, very small money on top of that, doing that. So right. plus she didn't grow up here in America. She grew up in Korea. Right. So mm. it was like. So anyways, I, I decided to give up on my personal uh, climb mm-hmm. up, up the echelon, upper echelon of restaurants. And I. I pivoted to resorts and, um, country clubs and things like that. So my first job was being a junior sous chef at a small resort deep in, the Anza Borrego desert, which mm-hmm. is, uh, the Northern San Diego desert. Um, there's a resort town over there, really beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, it's called Borrego Springs. And I, I started, uh, as a junior sous chef there, it was a really great opportunity because it gave us housing and, um, you know, it was consistent work. It was the pay was okay for what I was doing at that time. Mm-hmm. And it was beautiful out there. And yeah. it was a chance for my wife and I to get to know each other um, for the next two, three years yeah. in, a, in a very um, idyllic environment. Yeah. You know? So that brought me back to California. Mm-hmm. And then from there, I moved to Lake Tahoe. Um, became the, That was my first big, big job. Yeah. Became the executive chef of this 400 room hotel. Mm. This is this is truly the epitome of fake it till you make it. Yeah. I had no idea what the heck I was going to do. <laughs> I got the job, and I walked out of the uh, interview after I had gotten the job. I looked at the price—a four hundred room resort hotel on the on the banks of Lake South Lake Tahoe, beautiful property—and mm-hmm. I looked at the property. and I go oh shoot <laughs> <laughs> maybe 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 like someone here who maybe became a teacher at harvard westlake or something yeah. like you faked it your resume or whatever yeah. and then like uh okay wait a second now uh, what do i do now what do i do <laughs> yeah you know right. and um so i figured but i figured it out and that it uh that experience in lake tahoe shaped who i became as a manager because hmm. at that point i really didn't have a playbook of who i was as a manager yeah but i ran small small little resort kitchens you know um and i ran a country club for retirees so i had teams of like three or five you know and yeah. um i had built some fundamentals for managing but i hadn't had to manage a team of 35 yeah or 45 you know and so um, that experience in Lake Tahoe really shaped who I became as a manager, mm. and I found my style, which was um, w- was a style of encouragement versus versus abuse mm. versus uh, versus anger, you know. And I and I, I really found this very fluid kind of um, helpful style yeah. of who I became mm-hmm. as as a chef, and then I moved on. Um, from there, uh, within the same group, the Embassy Suites Hotel Group within Hilton, I became the corporate chef for the whole West Coast. Wow, that's and a big so they, job yeah, then too. Yeah, big job. Yeah. So they moved me to Sacramento, and I oversaw hotels from Seattle to San Diego. Mm. And then I kept moving up the ranks of the Hilton Group. So I had no idea of becoming a public chef at this point. <laughs> yeah. you know? My only desire was to make sure that your food was great. Yeah. Uh, maybe you came with your family. To a Tilton Hilton Resort at a Hilton Resort mm-hmm. to have a vacation. Uh, maybe you're there on a conference. You know, mm-hmm. my only goal was to make you happy. Yeah, and so um, I was good at it, man. I was a great hotel chef, and mm-hmm. so moved up. And um, after being a corporate chef, I became then I became kind of a, a corporate nationwide chef for the brand and mm. redeveloped the, the breakfast program there. Ah, and then that was my first taste of like being a public chef because uh, right before I ended that part of the career, they put me on the Ellen show. Oh, really? <laughs> to, to like, uh... <laughs> you know, Hilton was sponsoring the Ellen show. This is like 2006. So were you cooking food with Ellen on the uh, I made show? a thousand omelets on the show. Wow. And I gave away to everyone. Wow. Uh, but uh, I had no, I, I, but again, I wasn't trying to be anything. I was just doing my part as the representative of Hilton. Of, of yeah. Hilton. Yeah. Then, then I became, the way I got back to L.A. was I became the, um, a chef at the Beverly Hilton oh right and so after I had done everything I could possibly do within that corporate environment within Embassy Suites tried a new mountaintop and that was to become the chef at the flagship hotel of yeah. the whole brand right the whole parent brand and that was the Beverly Hilton yeah we do the Golden Globes and yeah Merv Griffin used to own it and you know it's, it's a very historic iconic yeah. iconic yep. and so came the chef there for a year then I got a weird cold call which um a headhunter call um mm-hmm. i'd never experienced that before so i uh a headhunter called me and uh uh it was to open this huge uh pan-asian restaurant in sanctuary city um run by the cheesecake factory mm. and um and is that rock sugar yeah that was rock sugar okay yeah. so i, I was used to, to live the, by there so, yeah, yeah. it was the opening chef de cuisine of rock sugar ah um, everything was going really well from the development side. I, I really got along with the executive chef. I got along with the corporate team. Mm-hmm. Um, I really liked them, and they I think they really liked me. And again, the development process, the three- to four-month development process went really well. The first month or two of the opening training and everything went really well. And even the first month of opening went really well. It was a huge restaurant opening. This was 2000. Two thousand seven, two thousand eight, but it was before social media, yeah, and it was before like the breakthrough and the crumbling and the and and the phoenix rising of this new restaurant environment that we have, where yeah. you have these small chef driven restaurants yep. that that are funded either by themselves in a mini mall or whatever. We didn't really have that type of environment. It was like the big, the big restaurants, and then small mom and pops. But there yeah. was, it wasn't like you had like these young 25-year-old chefs cooking the best food in the country in these small little restaurants, you know. And it wasn't it wasn't taking off like that in L.A. yet. And so Rock Sugar was a big opening, and uh, we were doing like 1,500 covers a day. It was like all kinds of celebrities coming through, and it was just so busy. And mm-hmm. um, But after the first month, something happened to me, and I just started to lose it. And um, I had what I call like some sort of professional amnesia Hmm. i forgot to do i forgot to how to do all the things that I had been training my whole life to do up until that point huh. i forgot how to be a great manager i forgot how to just execute recipes i forgot how to lead i i i was i couldn't keep up i was completely overwhelmed and yeah. swarmed and, yeah and I was failing for the first time in my professional career i was failing mm. and i couldn't stop myself from failing i um very much, maybe like a a, a major league baseball hitter, mm-hmm. maybe going through a slump. Yeah, right? right, right. Um, you could have been hitting three f- three fifty seven the year before. Yeah, with forty two home runs, right. And then this year you're hitting one eighty eighty six. Yep. You know, and um, two home runs, and you might be sent to the minors, and you just can't figure out what your, went wrong. What went wrong? Your yeah. elbow, your positioning, anything, you know, and. Um, and that was happening to me. Yeah, you know, um, I can't pinpoint exactly. I just couldn't hit the ball. Yeah, and finally, um, I, I walked into work one day, and there, I they called me to the office. They had all the corporate people there, and there was this Manila envelope on the desk, and I realized I was being fired. Wow. Yeah, it was it was devastating, and so um, and this was about two thousand seven. This was two thousand eight or two thousand eight, mid two thousand eight. Ooh, and um, I couldn't. I didn't know what to do. I I threw up in the parking lot of Sanctuary City. I I, I drove around aimlessly for days. I I, I didn't tell my wife. Um, yeah. I think for a month, maybe maybe wow. a couple of weeks a month. Yeah. I acted like I was going to work still. <laughs> yeah. You know. Um. And then then things started to get scary. It, you know. The next month I I faced reality and I started. I, I literally you know it it, it was it, it was like a movie. I uh getting the, the the classifieds you know mm-hmm. from the newspaper penny saver craigslist monster jobs.com yeah. everything but you had uh, built a pretty good resume right i mean i had but this was also um around the time of the real estate crisis right that was right before so the it was right right around that time so what happened was a lot i was kind of overqualified and so a Got lot it. of people were hiring so let's say i was a six figure salary right yeah People were looking to hire forty five thousand dollar, you know, um, second or third people in charge and promote them up, you know. Um, Got it. And so, a lot of the jobs that I was applying for, the salary wasn't there anymore. So then yeah. I had to, then I had to go and look for other jobs, and um, I just wasn't getting hired. Yeah, and I think a part of it was I was just, I was done. That part of my life was done. Yeah. Um, I didn't realize it at the time, but I was scared. And then my friend gave me a call. almost at the at the very last end of it, after about a three month spiral, um, my friend gave me a call and I used to work with him at the Beverly Hilton and he's like, I heard you lost your job, bro. Like just I got this idea, let's put Korean barbecue in a taco, we'll go in front of the clubs. You're gonna kill, what else you gotta do? And I didn't have anything else to do. I I, I, I look back and if I had gotten even one of those jobs, yeah, Kogi wouldn't have happened. Wow. You know? You know, we had liquidated all of our. We didn't have much savings, but we had liquidated all of our savings. I remember I had about f- four to five thousand dollars left. You know, total in wow. in, in everything savings, you know, yeah, yeah, everything, every, everything, and no job on the horizon. So, and then you know, just one month of bills would have depleted all of that. And, yeah, you know, I would have been in a very desperate position, and it was that call at that exact moment. The fact that for three months, no one was hiring me, mm-hmm. and um, and we went out and sold tacos on the streets of Hollywood. And, and at this point, I mean, we now think of food trucks,
0: part in part because of you, yeah. as as um something cool, <laughs> something where mm-hmm. you can get quality food. There are there are sort of areas of town where you can go visit a lot of food trucks at once. Mm-hmm. Um, you can go to events where we've even talked about Harvest West, like doing an event where you don't bring in a, a caterer, you just bring in a bunch of food trucks. Yeah. At that point,
1: that was not the case yet. We have to always remember that the bedrock of the lunch truck community and the taco truck community was there, but it was very much like the immigrant community that I told you about in the beginning of this podcast. Yeah, It lived maybe below the radar of popular American culture, yeah. but it is a part of a bedrock of, of a big part of American culture that wasn't being talked about a lot. Yeah. And so that was all there what we did was we we honored the soul of that and paired it with technology and a bunch of young young folks and just kind of created a new version of it you know but with the old soul i think that's again what made kogi so strong we yeah. weren't we weren't coming from left field and having no no link or lineage to the lunch truck community when we started kogi before we started we trained in the lunch trucks that were feeding the city. Yeah. And the lunch trucks that feed the city, just a quick, quick five-second history lesson yeah. is all of the skyscrapers and buildings and homes and construction that you see, mm-hmm. all of the folks that built our city were fed by food trucks. That's right, yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, because they can't leave the construction site, yeah. whether it's a 67-story uh, skyscraper mm-hmm. or whether it's a big home in the hills of Bel Air or whether it's a, you know, a huge corporate complex somewhere you just can't leave because you're building something sometimes in the middle of nowhere right yeah and so the lunch trucks are really very very much in like this time within coronavirus lunch trucks are the lifeblood of how we keep people fed you know and and then the taco trucks um and taco stands are were the bedrock and lifeblood of our immigrant communities, and how we ate, and where we ate, and what we could afford growing up. Yeah. And so, uh, we took all of that, and uh, we became the children of those trucks. Is yeah. I say. And so, yeah, and so what we did, what, what Kogi did by combining technology and and the soul of uh, our ancestors, and then the food itself is. We came up with a flavor that defined LA, mm-hmm. but we also connected And for those it. who don't know, it's it's co- sort of Korean food put into tacos. Korean barbecue put into an LA street taco. Right, and people try to label it as Korean food or Mexican food or Korean Mexican food. It's not. It's LA food. Got it. This food is c- completely LA. So we have, we don't ever try to claim that we're Mexican food. Or Korean food, right? Because we don't come from there. Yeah, we come from here, right? And so this is LA food. Can you describe how
0: technology impacted it? You've referenced it, but how, how in particular did the advent of Twitter and things like that
1: help Kogi to? Well, this is late grow? 2008. Yep. around October, November of 2008, the real estate crisis was was rampant. Uh, people. Foreclosing, losing their homes, you know the banks, uh, being exposed. Those huge Wall Street—I don't know which ones they were—but the huge Wall Street companies literally going bankrupt. Lehman, and, yeah, was big was one. Was it Lehman? Yeah, yeah. yeah uh, disappearing, yeah. right? But at the same time, the iPhone had just come out a year before, mm. and then Twitter had just come out earlier that year. Yeah, um, we were in this weird little, little perfect storm of people were transitioning from flip phones to smartphones. Yeah. People were transitioning from MySpace and Friendster into Twitter, mm-hmm. um, and then everyone was in this very scared, depressed state, like we are now, mm-hmm. not knowing what the future holds. Yeah, and so that that convergence, and then there's this little taco truck that starts tweeting out like we're gonna be here, and it it created a little bit of hope, and uh, people felt like it was a scavenger hunt. Yeah, people need a little bit of an escape. You know, maybe be- there's gonna became be almost s- like a game. Yeah. You know? It became like a game. Maybe yeah. there'll be something now within this time that emerges like Kogi did yeah. in that time. So it's interesting to think imag- about, yeah. imagine your feeling right now that we all collectively have yeah. this this uh, unsuredness, this 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 delicate feeling of we don't know what's coming and is our life gonna be over and you know, is everything I have gonna be gone? And then something, and, and then all the news around you, and all the the, the energy around you is negative. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, something comes out of nowhere and just brightens the spirit, like a rainbow. Yeah. Just bright, brightens the spirit of everyone, and that was Kogi. Yeah. And um, and it was just this really, really, really fast domino effect. Like yeah. it hit it hit the blogs first, the food bloggers. Mm-hmm. Uh, Shout out to them; they really supported us in the beginning. Then that went to the college students. Then that went to the uh, the local reporters. Jonathan Gold wrote wrote an article in January. Mm -hmm. We opened in November, and then the the national media got us in February. Mm -hmm. And then it was termed the the first viral restaurant in February by Newsweek. Mm -hmm. From there, it was just (sighs) wow, crazy. Grew and grew. Yeah. Well, one of my and and um. One of my favorite movies is
0: this movie Chef mm-hmm. starring Jon Favreau yeah. and I remember watching the movie and I didn't know that you had been involved in the movie but uh-huh. it's the story is kind of loosely based on on your story not uh, yeah. not not exactly the same but I love that movie and uh, if anyone it's on Netflix I think it's available for people to watch but it sort of tells the story of a chef who's hit a bit of a crucible moment and decides to to try out a food truck. In that case, it's what Cuban sandwiches. Yeah. right in the movie. It's a great movie. I highly recommend it to everyone. But you were involved in that, and that was sort of loosely taken.
1: Yeah, that was from uh, Kogi. I've, right. Um, well, John had written this. This is John Favreau's yep. very personal movie. Yep. Um, his indie film. You know, uh, many years after his indie film that kind of helped create the in, independent film genre. You mm-hmm. know, in Swingers, Swingers, swingers yeah. right? This is John Favreau after. Iron Man yep. before Lion King. It was an amazing meeting. I I I through that film I made of a, a best friend. Mm-hmm. You know, I and made, you guys host a show? We host a show together. called The Chef Show yeah. <laughs> on Netflix. Yeah. Which is it's a, that show's funny because that was just a show built out of a true friendship of just wanting to spend time together. Yeah. And uh, we were like, should we open a restaurant together? Should we do a sequel? Should we write a book and this and that? And then finally the chef show came about where yeah. we're cooking together like we we really love doing but then we bring in friends and guests and get to talk and have fun
0: lastly before mm-hmm. we leave i want to ask you a few there are a few standard questions okay. as part of the supporting cast la as you know is known for movies it's known for food mm-hmm. and it's known for our climate so i have i have three questions first what is roy Choi's favorite movie
1: i thought it was good fellas uh-huh but i watched it started watching it again last night and i it was more racist than I remember. Oh, it. yeah. And it really messed me up last night. Huh. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm actually having a a critic a crisis yes. in myself right now. Yeah. It's not that I missed it before, but maybe because I'm a little bit older mm-hmm. and wiser that I'm seeing it clearer. I'm and you're just, bothered by it more. I'm bothered by it, man. Yeah. I don't think he needed to go there with some... Some of that language, yeah. you know, back. The, so it was Goodfellas. So I don't have an answer for that. <laughs> okay. Anymore. Well,
0: yeah. we'll just say Chef because it's a great movie. Yeah, Chef. <laughs> Second, this is the big one everyone's waiting for. Um, What's your favorite meal in LA? Last meal, mm-hmm. something you make, a place you go, a food truck you visit.
1: Wh- what would it be? I don't know if it's if it's a specific place. Maybe it would be Chosan Karbi in Koreatown sure. that, that I go to a lot. Yeah, I've been there. Yeah. Um, but I. I, I, I love falafels, man. Falafels? I, yeah, I love falafels. <laughs> so I, I think maybe one of the last meals I would have is a falafel. And where from? Is there a place? Uh, a... I like falafel rocks okay. in, on Santa Monica and Normandy. Okay. Um, And then maybe sushi. Um, yeah. But I think ultimately it would be either falafel or Korean food. Yeah.
0: Got it. You got to figure out some sort of fusion between yeah, falafel maybe. and <laughs> Korean food. Yeah. Uh, Lastly, what's your favorite place in L.A.? I
1: like. I actually like coming to the harvard Westley campus, to Do you be really? honest. I oh. really loved the middle school campus. Oh. Um, but they wouldn't let me hang out there as much as when, like, my kid was in elementary school. <laughs> yeah. Like when you're not, Your daughter's you're on upper school like, now. Yeah. yeah, you go through, like, withdrawals as well, like, as a parent. Because <laughs> in elementary school, especially for us as private school parents, yeah. like, in elementary school, we went to a school where they re- they really required us to be there a lot. Right, we, the uh, center. right, The center, yeah. yeah. And so it was some, it was a huge part of my life. Yeah. You know, like going to campus, hanging out. Helping help with lunch things, and stuff helping like Helping with that. lunch, right. helping with the library, doing these things. And I know you can still volunteer now, but I'm just saying that it was a part of the culture. Yeah. And then you get to junior high, and it's just like you're not supposed to be there all, as much. <laughs> like, and you're, you're, sometimes your kids don't want you there and as much. They don't right? want you there as much. It's yeah. like a, So I really... I'm gonna say I love the middle school campus at Harvard West. Wow, I that's like one that. of my favorite places that I really enjoyed being. Um, I would say also uh, I love being on the streets. yeah, um, you know, outside of the the internal school stuff, uh, I love being on the streets with my truck. yeah, so I love being in in the neighborhoods of our city, of our county, sometimes in in very obscure spots in different parts of the day and night. and I just love being out there. I don't like being indoors in an office and things like that. I love being out on the street on the corner, serving food, talking to everything. I love being in that moment, even in front of office buildings. I love seeing people when they're able to get outside, yeah and, and be a different part of themselves. Yeah, so last question. Mm-hmm. You
0: are the parent of a daughter. Mm-hmm. I am also the parent of a daughter. My daughter's almost 17 months old, so okay. I'm at the beginning of all this. You have a 10th grade daughter. Mm-hmm. What is your best
1: parenting advice? Best parenting advice is um to f- completely be in the moment at all times with your with your children. Mm. You know. Um, put down the phone. Yeah. As put much down as possible. the possible. Put down the phone. Like like anything you really love, mm-hmm. you have to be again going back to let's just for the sake of this podcast, the the batter's box for a baseball player. Yeah. You have a hundred mile per hour pitch coming at you. Mm-hmm. You can't take that lightly. You can't have your mind on a million different things or and just treat this as one of those million different things. Yeah. You have to be in the moment. Or if you're a performer mm-hmm. and you have a crowd of people in front of you that have been waiting for you, you can't just treat it like you half heard it mm-hmm. and you give a half answer to it, you know? Um, being completely present. Com- Completely present in the moment for that moment yeah um, I see sometimes parents that shoo their kids away or mm. don't want to hear it or are not listening yeah. to them. and I know we all have our own things to deal with in life but if you're asking my advice of how to be a good parent it's be in the moment you know especially with everything going on now we have to remember that these moments are are, are the most important things that we have and it's uh that that's how I, I raised our kid, Kaelin. You know, yeah. is um, I I don't know if I, I gave her all the tools necessary in life, um, but I I did I think give her the moments necessary in life. Yeah. yeah.
0: Well, I think it's a great lesson for this moment. I mean, mm-hmm. we a lot of us are at home more with yeah. with our kids right now, and uh, trying to be present with them and not worry yeah. about what's going to happen a few weeks or a few months from now, but really be present. And also, just your your story about the Kogi truck, it was born out of uh, a financial crisis. Mm -hmm. It was born out of a personal crisis. And for all of us thinking about our own crises or the world crisis we're living in right now, what, to your point, what are going to be the creative things that come out of this using technology just like Kogi did, Mm -hmm. uh, using creativity just like you did, using the blending of cultures and thinking about how to serve our city uh, I think those are all things we can think about during this moment. So thank you. Well, thank you so much thank you. for inspiring great. us in this way. And thank you for joining the supporting cast. Thank
1: you.